All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in. I was going to say thank you for being here with us, but that really doesn't make any sense right now. Thank you for uh, tuning in to worship with us this morning. Guys, I miss you, and trust me, this is not the thing that I thought I would be doing just a few months into planting a church, but you know what? God knows what he's doing. God's plans uh, are better than ours, so he knows what he's, how he's going to bring us through this. He knows how he's going to grow us through this. Anyways, as we get into this passage this morning, if you would, if you have a Bible, uh, please take it, turn to it. Uh, if you're using it on your phone, swipe over to it. We're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21 today. So this week kicks off a tradition that the church has held uh, and celebrated since as far as far back as the 4th century. Uh, it's called Holy Week or Passion Week or whatever you like to call it. But what it does is what we, what we have always done uh, as a church is we want to take time during this week, the week leading up to Easter, and acknowledge the path that took Jesus from entering Jerusalem like a king, like that we're going to talk about this morning, to being crucified for our sake later on in the week, and then ultimately raised from the dead, letting us know that hope is alive. And so the church has had a couple different holidays to celebrate this. Uh, this week we celebrate what's called Palm Sunday, which uh, celebrates Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, depending on what your church background is, you may have grown up celebrating uh, the Thursday uh, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a celebration called Maundy Thursday. Um, on Friday, we celebrate what's called Good Friday, uh, acknowledging the pain that Jesus went to pay the price for our sins. And then obviously, next Sunday, we celebrate his glorious resurrection on Easter. Now, we'd be celebrating this anyway. Whether there was a virus outside, whether there was a quarantine going on or not. But since we all are somewhat separated during this time, and frankly, since all of us probably have more time at home than we usually have, what I really want to do is encourage you guys this week to take time and to just soak up the narrative of the gospel. So if you were uh, with us, if you were participating with us this past week, I let you know I was going to preach on Matthew 21. And so I encouraged everybody to read Matthew 1 through 20 uh, to prepare for the lesson, to really get the full story of, of Matthew's gospel. And what I, an easy way to continue this is we're in 21 today. Tomorrow you can read 22. Day after you can read 23, 24, 25. And then on Easter Sunday we'll be on Matthew 28. So I encourage you to do that. Now, if there's one thing I think we can all clearly say about this situation, this time we're living in. If there's one thing I can say fairly certainly that what God wants you to do during this time, it's to slow down and listen. The entire world is slowing down right now. The entire city of Las Vegas, a city that never sleeps, is quiet on the strip right now. Clearly, God is trying to teach us something. If we look to his word, if we seek him in prayer, we, if we listen, we will be changed from all of this. We'll be changed through all this, I should say. Okay, so as we get into the text today, as I said, we're jumping into the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, before we do that, what I need to do is kind of get us up to speed on Matthew's Gospel, whether you've been following it with us or throughout the week or not. So, here it goes. 
The Gospel of Matthew is a book that primarily focuses on the proof that Jesus was and is the long-awaited Messiah, and that his arrival ushered in what is referred to as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in the Bible. So what does that mean? So if you go back into the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis, God created humanity to live under his rule as Lord over their lives. Now, if you were with us for the last um, six weeks or eight weeks, you know that Basically, that didn't work out. That didn't last very long. So mankind lived in a paradise, a place where they might enjoy friendship with God and life the way it was meant to be lived. However, as we know, Adam and Eve rejected God's lordship over their lives. And as a result, sin, suffering, and death entered the world. And so God, we, God then later on will choose a people, the children of Abraham, to be his special people to display his love, his justice, his mercy, and his wisdom to the whole world through them. He gives them even a land, the nation of Israel, and places a king over them, a king named David. Now, David marks kind of the, is kind of the high watermark for the nation of Israel. Life never gets quite as good as it was during the days of King David. And so David, even though he's far from perfect, marks this era they're always trying to get back to. Everybody wants to get back to those golden those, the golden days of King David, the good old days. Yet, in the Bible, even as we see uh, the nation of Israel and everything uh, spinning into chaos, they get sent into exile on multiple occasions, what we find is there's these prophecies of another king who would come, who would restore things back, to the, not only to the way they were before, to the good old days, but actually reversing the curse of sin, restoring life to the way it was always meant to be. This concept of life the way it was meant to be, the good life, is what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. And then this era, this time when the kingdom of God would arrive was to be marked by the arrival of the king who would reign in God's kingdom. This person was referred to as the Messiah or the Christ. So if you're sitting at home right now and you thought Jesus' last name was always Christ, it's not. It's his role. So Matthew writes to show that Jesus is that Messiah, that Christ, and that he is ushering in God's kingdom upon the earth, restoring life to the way it was originally created to be lived. But then what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus, despite doing this, doesn't really hang out with the sort of people we would expect. So even though he's a king, he, he's not the kind of king you would be expecting. You would be expecting someone rich, some kind of maybe great military leader or some uh, admired figure. But instead, what we find is Jesus is the, the poor son of a carpenter. And instead of hanging out with the cream of the crop that you could find, instead we see Jesus hanging out with fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, not the sort of people you would expect the king of kings to be hanging out with. And so when we pick up in our story today, Jesus has been going around for a few years now, telling people of the good news of God's kingdom, healing the sick, performing miracles, and all, and all sorts of miraculous signs, and doing all the things you would expect someone to do if they were sent from God. We find Jesus now today entering Jerusalem, the hub of Judaism, around the celebration that they would call Passover. 
So if you would, please turn to me to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a beast of burden. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. And, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches to the, from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So, this is the entry, this is the big story. And to be honest with you, I don't get it. Like, why is this the story that stands out so much to people? Why is it that this is the story that we have a holiday for? After of all the amazing things Jesus did, Jesus fed the 5,000, uh, Jesus healed lepers, Jesus uh, literally brought someone back from the dead. But we don't have a holiday for that. We don't have Lazarus Sunday or anything like that. Why is it that this story tucked away in the back of Matthew's gospel has been so important for people? I mean, after all, it's kind of weird when you think about it. Jesus sent his disciples out to take a donkey that wasn't even his. That's like saying, Jesus, it almost sounds like Jesus sent his disciples out to lift a car or something. What's he... What's he doing here? Well, maybe it's to fulfill prophecy. See, Matthew mentions that. He mentions that all this is to fulfill uh, prophecies that dated back to 500 plus years when uh, they were first written. Now, that's true. Uh, they do find that these prophecies do find their fulfillment in the life of Jesus, and that's certainly impressive. As a matter of fact, it's insanely impressive, and Matthew do, uh, devotes a large amount of time to, to discussing this. Now, to explain how impressed this, impressive this is, if you were to look at stats, people have done this because some people like me are a bit of number nerds, and they wanted to find out stats. And if you looked at the likelihood of any individual actually fulfilling eight of the prophecies written in the Old Testament about the Messiah, they have said that the odds of that just happening is one in 100 quadrillion. That's eight. Now, to put this, this is Vegas, so to put this in perspective, if there was a horse that had those odds and you put a dollar on that horse to win and he won, you would have enough money to give 100,000 people a trillion dollars. That's eight. To fulfill 300 prophecies, which it is said that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament, it is statistically impossible. Basically, it would, it would be a statistical miracle, which is exactly what we think it is. So that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah spoken of by the prophets is something that Matthew 
gives a lot of time to in his letter. He points this out over and over and over again. But that still doesn't tell us why this moment, why Jesus entering Jerusalem and people laying down palm branches, why that was so important. Why did he choose this little detail in the story, which could have been one sentence, and Jesus came into Jerusalem to explain it? Well, what makes Palm Sunday so special, what makes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem so special is that it marks a dramatic change in Jesus' ministry. See, prior to this time, Jesus' ministry was actually surprisingly low-key for what you would expect, you know, the Messiah to be. Uh, We would find this, if you've been reading through with us in Matthew, you see this over and over again. Jesus would do these amazing miracles and then be like, okay, now just don't tell anybody about it. Just keep it on the down low, okay? As a matter of fact, Matthew records... uh, Examples such as this. There's a time where Peter asks, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, congratulations, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this. God revealed this to you. And then right after he words, he says, now don't tell anybody about it. I don't know about you, but if that's me, I want to tell everybody I know about that. I feel like I figured out a secret. I feel clever when I figure out stupid little secrets, let alone the greatest secret anyone's ever figured out. Uh, Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus revealed himself. He was transfigured. He took some of his disciples up on a mountain, showed himself in all his glory to them, and Elijah and Moses appeared with him. And then afterwards, when they're coming down from the mountain, he says, see to it that you don't tell anybody about it. So all Jesus' ministry was intentionally secret. Jesus had a secret identity. He didn't ever deny who he was as being the Messiah, but he didn't go about telling everybody about it either. What Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marks is the point where his ministry got a lot more public. So here we find Jesus not downplaying his lordship, but instead announcing it to the whole world. So what do we see here? We see Jesus entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, geographically, this was a high point that hung over the rest of the city. The Mount would be the highest point of entry. And so the entire city could see Jesus coming as he was coming down the, the Mount of Olives. And he comes riding into town on a donkey, specifically one that has never been ridden before. Why the detail? Why explain that Jesus didn't ride into town on a horse or something cooler sounding? Well, here's this. You know who would have ridden into a town on an, un, on an unridden before, unbroken animal? It would have been a ruler announcing peace. See, what Jesus is letting everyone see here is that, yes, he is the king that they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And he comes bringing peace. And so what we do here is we find people throwing their cloaks on the ground, cutting off branches and putting it for him to walk on. And this is basically the first century equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for him. Jesus enters and people cry out, Hosanna. Literally, Lord, save. Now, there's a little bit of, an, a, little bit of a word play there. Uh, it's kind of ironic because Jesus' own name, Yeshua, Uh, It literally means to save or to deliver. So here's the situation. People are crying out, Lord, save. And then the answer is this guy riding into town on a donkey. 
So we have, the, we have this scenario. Jesus comes to the town revealing himself to be this Messiah, the promised king that God's people had been waiting for that could save them and bring peace. So what's the first thing this peaceful king does? Well, he goes into the temple and starts kicking people out of it and screaming at them. We read on. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Okay, now, this story, when we get into it, it's important to understand money changing in the temple, money changing for the temple was not in itself a sinful act. As a matter of fact, if foreigners were coming to the temple, which especially during this time, the time of Passover, they were, they would actually have to change uh, their currency over to pay temple taxes, or if they didn't bring a sacrifice with them, it would be common to purchase a sacrifice on the way to the temple. So it's not the, it's not the fact that these people existed that made it so wrong. Instead, what, the problem was this. This is the sort of thing you would do outside of the temple before entering it. So what was happening, happening here is that these people, by doing this, by making sure this is all front and center, is that they are showing that this is what's most important. What's most important is making sure you get the, the correct temple tax. In other words, they were taking the focus off of God in order to make sure they knew where the money was coming from. Now this makes Jesus furious. So he starts flipping over tables and saying to those in earshot, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now pause for a moment. We're going to come back to this idea, but this is one of two times in our section today that prayer is explicitly mentioned. So we'll come back to this. Jesus, uh, Je Jesus has a problem here, and namely that they're not devoting themselves to prayer when they come to God's house, the temple. So Jesus goes right on doing his whole Jesus thing. We read in verse 14, that after cleaning the temple, then he starts showing them what it's really about. He starts having the blind and the lame come to him, verse 14, and he healed them. And, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to him, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So people are now praising Jesus publicly, and he accepts it. Prior to this, like I said, most people would have just thought of Jesus as being probably, if you didn't know him or weren't around him before, you'd have probably thought he was a prophet, someone like John the Baptist before him. But by calling him the son of David, this is important. They are linking him to the, to the former king. They are acknowledging him to be the Messiah, the promised Jewish king. And so the religious leaders of this time hate this, and they ask him to stop it. He says, why don't you quiet those guys down? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus' reply is simply this. No, this is, what it's, this is what's supposed to happen. This too is prophecy. In other words, it isn't blasphemous because it's true. Not only that, but I have to note that Jesus telling a bunch of professional Bible students, have you never read, is a pretty solid burn too. So then our section goes, uh, closes out on a strange note. Jesus has walked in as a conquering hero. 
He's cleansed out the wickedness of the temple. He's healed people. He's preached the good news. And then we read this weird story. Verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay, this is probably the strangest miracle of all Jesus' miracles in the entire gospel because it seems really, really weird. It seems kind of petty almost. Jesus wanted a snack, and so he didn't get one. It's almost like you would think this was silly if I said, hey, I went to the candy machine to go get a candy bar. They were all out of Snickers, so I cursed the machine and said, may you never work for anyone again. What's going on here then? Like, what's the deal? What is happening? Why did Jesus do this? Well, most Bible experts agree and have recognized that there's more to this story than just Jesus getting mad that he didn't get a snack. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this fruitless fig tree and the temple in Jerusalem are related to each other in some way. Notice that both stories mention prayer. In the temple scenario, Jesus chastises the temple workers for neglecting prayer in God's house. While the fig tree, with the story of the fig tree, Jesus says that in essence, with prayer, anything is possible. Why prayer? Why is that the thing he brings out? Well, verse 2 lets us in on that. He says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. See, according to Jesus, prayer and faith go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, prayer is seen as an outward expression of inward faith. Jesus is telling the disciples that he was able to curse this fig tree. By the way, fun fact, have you ever thought of a curse as being a form of prayer? It is. So he, he curses this fig tree because he trusted that God could and would do it. Now, little side note before I go on about prayer. It's important that you understand prayer is not a way to force God's will on anything. It's not a way to force your will on God, I should say. See, Jesus could curse this fig tree with confidence because he knew that this was God's will. So just because you are not able to do every magic spell you think of because you see that as a form of prayer, the reason because of that is because it's not God's time and it's not God's will. Let me explain. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself is going to encounter a scenario where he prays and asks something from God and he gets a no answer. Why? Because it was not God's will and it was not God's timing. So, back to our current story. Jesus connects prayer with faith. And so, by chastening the temple workers for their lack of prayer, he is also scolding them for their lack of faith. This is an idea that Matthew frequently touches on in his gospel account. See, God hates the appearance of religion without actual heart change taking place and without actual fruit to show from it. See, if you've been reading through Matthew with us, you've seen this several times. For example, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist told the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And so meaning if you have an actual change of heart, if you have actual repentance, there should be something to show from it. Jesus told this famous parable, the parable of the sower, and mentioned that those who truly receive his word produce a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. The idea here is that true faith creates results or fruit, and God curses those who try to appear religious on the outside only. Notice that this story tells us that there were leaves on the fig tree. That's important. See, leaves were a sign that figs should be blooming. In other words, the tree looked outwardly like there should have been fruit on it, but when he went and took a closer look, there was none. And I believe that what Jesus is showing here is that Jerusalem itself is like this fig tree. There is a bustling temple full of people, all signs of spiritual health, but the truth is, all these things are only surface deep. The reality is that they have a religion without any connection with, to God. And as a result, as Matthew often points out in his gospel, they fall under God's judgment, not his blessing. So that's the story. How do we tie this all together? What do we see here? Well, we see Jesus revealing himself as the Christ who condemns false religion and commends true faith. So what does that mean for you and I? It means that we have to push past the inclination to look at signs of being outwardly religious without looking to the issues of our own hearts. If God is not satisfied with merely the appearance of faith, but wants the real thing, then we have to be willing to examine ourselves deeply and honestly lest we find ourselves being in the same boat, that we've been religious without having repentance, that we've been seemingly religious without true faith. So let me be upfront with you guys on this. This is going to be uncomfortable, maybe even painful for some people. See, we don't naturally like an honest assessment of ourselves. We want to know the good stuff about ourselves, but ignore all the rest. We want to just say, okay, I've got this going on for me, I've got this going on for me, I've got this going on for me, and all that other stuff I ignore, we won't worry about it. Guys, I was thinking about it this week, though. When you include only the good parts of someone's life and ignore the bad, you know what that is? That's a eulogy. That's an obituary. That's how we remember people who are dead. That's not how we should approach our own lives while we are living. And so while we have breath in our lungs... While there's still time to change, be willing to ask God to give you an accurate assessment of yourself. See, David said it this way in the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, God delights in true repentance, true faith. If we desire that, I think the obvious takeaway that we see then from this passage is to then go to God in prayer and ask him to produce real fruit in our lives. See, asking God to reveal the truth of our faith and to draw us closer to him, that's something he loves to hear. That's a prayer he loves to answer. So pray that way. And here's the great news. Even though it may be uncomfortable, you can have the confidence that you are actually falling the king, and seeking God's kingdom, even if it's uncomfortable at times. And that's a good place to be in. See, the one who seeks what only God can give will not be disappointed. 
And so Jesus is the one who can actually save. He's the one who can rescue us, who can change us from the inside out and bring us safely into God's kingdom. So when you look at the gospel accounts, guys, Jesus wasn't impressed with people's knowledge or their accomplishments or even their religious devotion or their positions or anything. What Jesus wants is our faith. Jesus wants us to trust him. He knows that if you trust him and follow him, it will produce fruit in your life. It'll change you. He will change you. Therefore, we too this day declare, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We ask God for rescue, and we look to Jesus as the solution. And with that I say, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You are the answer to our prayers. You alone can save. Thank you. You are our great God and King. You are the Messiah. You are the one that people for centuries waited for. And we find our hope in you. God, let us be a people who express our faith through prayer. Let us be people who call upon you. Let us be people who listen to you and accept the hard truths that we often find when we go to you in prayer. God, it's not always easy, but you are always good and you know what you are doing. And so we trust in your care, in your reliable hands this morning. God, guide and direct us. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.